Hello, and welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast, where we're trying to create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. Customer happiness. This is part of the genesis of this episode. This episode all started in 2018. I've had a notion for quite a while of the need for a responsible contractor network, or I call RCN. Now, this came up when my widowed sister that lives many states away was having trouble with her HVAC system in her home, and she asked who I would recommend. I had no immediate answers. I then created a few basic principles of conduct, process, and integrity for a responsible contractor network. I even bought a domain name and mentioned the idea a few times at the HVAC School Symposium, for example, and received some decent response. Then I fell into other rabbit holes. Fast forward to 2023, and I came across a list put forth by Corbett Lunsford, and the link is in the show notes. It's homediagnosis.tv forward slash HVAC dash installers. I'll read you a little bit of the premise of the list. The list is a voluntary, unvetted directory of HVAC installers across North America who will trust and follow or even perform in-house design calculations like manual JS&D. And these companies have self-selected by affirming the following questions. I understand that HVAC design steps are important. I understand that a more airtight, insulated, and ventilated homes may provide higher square foot per ton of cooling. And if I follow the software-based design correctly, I understand it's not my problem because it might be due to the building. Well, more or less, that's it. And, you know, dang, he did it. So I scrolled through this list, which is now 51 strong, and saw someone in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I live. And that's how this episode started. I reached out to speak with Matt Stone. Had him visit my house. We chatted a little bit, and I said, Matt, you got an interesting backstory. Want to come on the podcast? And here you go. Happy to have met this next person in Pittsburgh as a contractor that I didn't know existed. Good afternoon, Matt. Hey, how you doing, Bill? Good. Matt, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Matt Stone. I'm the owner of Home Mechanics out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're a HVAC contractor, sales, service, installation, do a little bit of everything, replacements, service, and then some new construction and custom home type work. And I met Matt through a list that Corbett Lunsford put out Something like scientific HVAC installers? Yeah, I think it's basically, do you measure things? Yeah. (laughs) I think that's an easier way of putting it. Do you measure things? (laughs) Yeah. So that's the only reason I know Matt existed, even though his last name rhymes with mine, which is helpful, and that he's in the Pittsburgh area, is through Corbett's list. What attracted you to that list, or how did you find out about it? So I geek out on some YouTube videos, podcasts, and all like I watched Corbett's YouTube videos on him building his house and try to pick up whatever I can. And then somehow I saw the list maybe on his Instagram or something and I clicked on him like, oh, well, I fit this profile. Might as well click on here and see if I can attract some more of the customers that I would like to work with. Has it helped out? Oh, I met you. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't need any work yet, but maybe I will. Yeah. And I have a go-to person here. And that list is up to around 50 contractors now across the country, something like that. Yeah, that's probably right. I will put in the show notes a link to that list. And 
I told Corbett, I texted him the other day and I said, I'm going to make this list more popular through my channels if I can, because I think it's a good thing that you're doing. It's sort of like self-regulating. There's no money. It's just criteria, basically. And people see in the list when I show them. It's really something homeowners should find because a lot of them get frustrated when they get some of the unique situations that people have that they can't seem to find the right person and maybe it's a good start. Yeah. What led you to starting, founding home mechanics here in Pittsburgh? You got a career history. You explained to me the other day when you visited. and Yeah. Where do you want me to start, I guess? Yeah. Start over again out in the West Coast. So I grew up on the West Coast. I was actually born in New Jersey, but we moved to the West Coast when I was a kid. I worked for my dad. He started a landscape company. I worked for him doing hardscapes and designing building servicing irrigation systems. I'd always been interested in mechanics. So eventually I actually went to school to be a diesel mechanic in Wyoming Technical Institute. And my dad wanted my brother and I to go on to cut the apron string, see what we were worth in the world anyway. So work timing worked out. So I went to school to be a diesel mechanic. And then from there I found a job at Caterpillar's Research and Development Center in Illinois, Peoria, Illinois. So they moved me there and I actually did research and development on their diesel test engines. I basically ran dynos, analyzed emissions, torque, horsepower, temperatures, pressures. We're watching everything. We'd be 15 to 30 thermocouples on just one engine. Would you say that's the point where you got interested in the measurement end of things? Yes. At the end of the day, we made a giant Excel sheet full of data points. And then from there, you interpolated fuel maps and timing maps and everything like that to actually design the mapping of the ECM and the engine to meet power requirements, fuel efficiency requirements, emission requirements. So that's how that magic happens in the ECM. Would that be true across the... Yeah. We'll actually manually set the engine all these certain timings and we'll do like, say, like a timing sweep and we'd run at a certain speed and load and put different timings and sometimes different fueling values and then check the emissions levels and then they could plug in a matrice into the ECM so that when the engine sits at these certain points, it's running certain timing so it meets the criteria. So you can have the same engine essentially for multiple applications, but it just different ECM programming. And you're looking at like the opacity of the smoke, NOx, CO, CO2, you name it, we're, we're watching it. Very interesting. Okay, continue on there. So test and mechanic, R&D, Caterpillar. Yeah, eventually I became a what they call a platform engineer over there. And one of the guys I worked with, another technician, he went and got a job at a lead-acid battery startup company that spun out of Caterpillar. And it intrigued me. So they had another position open there. I applied, got that position, and I moved over to lead-acid batteries. And from there, I was we were building prototype batteries, building, modifying prototype equipment. So we had a very specific process that was new to the industry to build those batteries. So we actually developed that process. Then you had to scale up developing equipment to eventually manufacture. So I worked a lot in what they called pilot operations, where it was out of the lab, but not into manufacturing. So we got to build a lot of our own equipment, modify equipment that was in the industry to do what we needed to do. Eventually from there, I ended up developing a few pieces of equipment. I'm actually on a patent from there as well as eventually I started engineering some of my own equipment, casting molds, learned how to use SolidWorks. And then actually I got to work closely with the CTO and he's the one that actually invented the technology at Caterpillar. And eventually, I ended up even designing some of the batteries. I designed the plastic cases that the batteries are in. 
And then we did three virtual 3D simulations in SOLIDWORKS where you could simulate different pressures. Lead acid batteries, to me, seems to be a very old technology. What was going on there that you could speak about that's different? So lead acid batteries are made up of cathodes and anodes. And the anode is the one that's usually corroding. That's the called the negative plate. That's like what's attached to the negative terminal on the battery. And then there's acid. So the positive plate and the negative plate don't touch each other. There's always something separating. Depending on the type of battery, you've probably heard AGM batteries that has like a fiberglass mat between them. And then it's like a sponge and it absorbs that sulfuric acid in there where like the old batteries just had like, you could shake and you hear water. That would be a flooded battery. And that's where the transport of the ions goes on? Is that- right. Across from the acid. So the acid actually turns from water to acid depending on the state of charge. These were AGM batteries, but the anode was replaced with a piece of carbon foam. So picture a seat cushion material that's impregnated with an alcohol and then furnished at, I think if I remember, like two to 3,000 degrees. It turns into this hard block carbon foam that's really abrasive, but it looks like that foam, but black now and hard. So you can still see all the little pore structures. So we had to develop a way to efficiently cut that. It's very abrasive, so saws, you name it, everything abrades through it very quickly. So we developed a way to slice that foam into the anode pieces. Then you had to put a current collector on that. So a lead grid, you had to adhere to it to actually collect the electricity, I guess was the simplest way to put it. And then we had to actually impregnate that foam with a lead slurry. So battery, you think of lead as like a fishing weight or a car tire weight. But in the battery industry, they actually use lead oxides, lots of different lead oxides. And it's oxidized lead. It's a powder. In a traditional battery, it's more like a clay-like substance, and they pack it really hard and dense between this heavy lead grid, and then that makes your plate. Well, we have this fragile carbon foam. In fact, the one I was hired there, their test was they put a slice of this carbon foam on the table, because I guess because I'm a bigger guy, they didn't think I could carefully handle things, and they put it down on the table, and I had to pick up the piece of foam off the table without sliding it off the table. I picked it up first try, and then the guy interviewing me he said, well, how did you do that? Because he, he couldn't pick it up. <laughs> so we had to develop how to cut that. They actually started with that was they have a diamond wire saw, and they use it for cutting silicon wafers in the solar industry, actually. And it's a wire. Like a bandsaw? No. So it's like it has these spools, and there's like a one piece of abrasive wire that's maybe a couple hundred yards. And it goes through these spools, so you can make like 50 slices at a time. And that wire runs through there, and then it just slices through. Well, it's really, really slow, and the wire braids pretty quickly, and then now your pieces go change size. And it's great for what it was developed for, but for what we used it for, it just was not efficient. That's like the way I cut cheesecake is with dental floss. So. <laughs> yeah, same principle. So we impregnated this anode with the carbon foam with the lead slurry. So we had to develop that slurry because it was not like anything. We had to develop how to get that into the carbon foam quickly as well as efficiently and you have to test everything you do by the way the testing thing is really getting into me now it's coming all together now i'm talking about it it's it's right right then you have to assemble this battery and the battery is made up of cells like your car battery is six cells the lead acid chemistry is nominally two volts they'll put six of those together to get your 12 volt car battery and bust them all together internally so where you're headed with this is to make is it a lighter more durable what's the ultimate goal it's longer lasting. So for example, it was in Illinois. We were able to 
get a few of the batteries into the Chicago City buses. We were able to outfit two buses with these batteries. They were Group 31 batteries, which are like heavy tr- over-the-road truck t- type batteries. A typical bus battery lasts 12 to 18 months, probably more like 12 in Chicago. After five years, they were still in there. So the really big advantage was, so you're familiar with solar. Solar, ideally, you want your batteries to be at a partial state of charge. So when you get to that final 90, 85 to 100% charge, it's really inefficient to charge there. And then when you get towards the lower capacity of the battery, it's hard on the battery. And That's like under 20? Yeah, under 20. Well, on a lead-acid battery, it's down to up 50 is tough on the battery. And that's when the batteries start to sulfate. They'll start to grow crystals and maybe short themselves out or start to break down. These batteries, the carbon foam, I don't like to say they desulfated, but they didn't sulfate much. And they could stand being at a partial state of charge for very long periods of time without going to a full state of charge. And they could charge quickly, which is lead-acid batteries are typically very slow to charge. So say in your solar array, it wouldn't have to waste a bunch of energy trying to take that battery up to 100%. It could go quickly up to 85 and be happy with it, where a traditional battery would sit there and corrode. That being said, they're much less expensive than a lithium battery. The cost of these batteries were more along the lines of like a high-end less lead-acid battery. But it was one of those things where they just couldn't make the business work. And I bankrupted the company with them. You did? <laughs> I didn't personally bankrupt them. <laughs> but the company went bankrupt while I was working there. And then a gentleman from India purchased the assets and the intellectual property, brought back a few of us. And we tried to make a go of it. We actually started to build some of the full, full batteries and on site and get them in a few applications. And then it just didn't seem like it was going anywhere. It was a difficult working situation. And my friend was working in another battery startup company in Pittsburgh. And it also a similar industry. Primarily, they were looking towards solar, completely different chemistry. But they had a position there that was basically my resume. So I applied for it. And I had a friend working there. And I got to come visit Pittsburgh, which was beautiful. It was like a perfect like October weekend. And they went down the Strip District, took some breweries. And it was a cool startup with 25 to 35-year-olds. They having happy hour on Friday. I got to go to the happy hour after my interview. So it was pretty fun. So I went there. And then once again, I was in charge of pilot operations. And that's basically just getting the lab to manufacturing. So I was in the in-between. And then uh, I was also responsible for the facility. So I had a maintenance guy under worked under me. At the last place fire the last place, I was also responsible for facility. So I was always had my hands into the equipment. Yeah, the equipment. And that company actually, the one in Pittsburgh went bankrupt as well as well. Listener note, don't hire Matt. <laughs> don't hire Matt. Let's just let him do his own thing, see if he can bankrupt that. I'm doing all right so far. My employees was a maintenance guy, and he had worked for a local HVAC contractor about like twenty five years prior to that. And we were doing some work on the weekends and stuff on the side. And we we're talking about maybe starting our own business. And then the company went bankrupt. They laid him off. They kept me and about 10 other individuals to try to make the intellectual property look more appealing to basically auction it off. We ended up just making a go out of it. And I'm here. So in January 1st, 2020, I took the company over completely. My old partner, he got a pretty sweet offer for another maintenance job. And he was getting a little older and didn't really want to put in the hours that we were going to need. So we worked it out. He took that. And we still talk to each other. So Taking a step back, I think you told me it was a very unique technology with that Pittsburgh battery company. Yeah. So it was developed at Carnegie Mellon University, and then it spun out of there. And it's kind of hard to explain. More carbon-related 
a lot of batteries are really looking at carbon and graphite. So carbon and graphite based. And another long life battery, not really high performance. It was heavy and bulky for what it could do, but they were really shooting towards the solar market where you have something where you have a room very safe stationary yeah stationary you could drink or eat the stuff out of it it wouldn't taste good or anything like that i wouldn't recommend it but it wouldn't hurt you either it was made out of stainless steel carbon graphite let's see i'm trying to think maybe some basic was there water involved yeah yeah there was water involved yeah water about and some electrolytes but it was a pretty cool process so we'll go back forward again to january 1st 2020 and home mechanics started with you as the principal and only, or are you working with staff now? So for the first few months, I was the only, and that was pretty eye-opening to see like, okay, I can do this by myself if I have to, and I can support my family. And that's what it comes down to. I can do it. And so that was months pre-COVID. And I had a friend of a friend's employee who was working landscaping. He was actually, he was a physicist. <laughs> he just graduated with physics degree and needed a job. So I brought him on and he was working with me for a couple of months. And then I brought on another guy that was actually my old partner's nephew that worked for us, but didn't like working for his uncle. And then I bought a truck and then COVID hit and they told us we had to stop everything for a while. Luckily, I was able to still run service, but somehow I always end up into a lot of construction work and that stopped in Pennsylvania. So that got a little scary. But then since then, we've been busier than ever. A lot of work, a lot of construction projects, a lot of pretty cool projects that I've fallen into or ended up with. How do people find you? How do people find me? It's a pretty competitive market in Pittsburgh for the marketing side. So I probably get referral as much as anything. That seems to be what feeds me the most. I only have two employees right now, so I don't need a ton of work, but I stay pretty busy and I usually am pretty good at holding on to the customers that I get. I really try to take care of them, solve the problems. So I have a few general contractors I work with that have led me to a few other general contractors and get some cool projects. We have a VRV project starting up right now. I was going to be doing the VRV project. Yeah, how big a system? Just like a four-ton, two-zone, two air handlers. It's like the upper two floors of an old house that we actually just installed a really nice high-efficiency boiler in a year ago. But he wants to go all electric. So, What do you see in the trends for all electric in the last couple of years? Yeah, heat pumps. I actually just sold a job this last week to install a Mitsubishi. Have you seen the Mitsubishi's coil for to go on top of a furnace? No. Yeah, they have a coil to go on top of a furnace, and you still use the Mitsubishi outdoor unit. And this will be the first one I install. I took some training on it. They have some pretty cool controls for really set up to be dual fuel. So it can withstand the heat of a furnace? Yeah. It's actually their coil from one of their air handlers developed into a box, like a cased coil, and then they have a control box that goes alongside of it. And you'll actually still use the Mitsubishi controller, and then that control box will control the furnace. Interesting. You have like a model on that? I could maybe grab a link and put it in the show notes? Yeah, I'll send that to you. Okay. And then I've also been working with this program called Sealed, and they really are trying to electrify and then finance customers to do that. And on top of my side of the world, they're also air sealing, insulating as part of the package. They're going all with all electric, all their projects. So I've had a couple other customers that have reached out for similar things. How often are you able to integrate testing into your routine? I use MeasureQuick and mostly field piece, Bluetooth probes and couple, maybe UIs sprinkled in there. So I try to run everything through MeasureQuick, not as deeply as I would like to. 
I really need to just spend the weekend playing with it at home and trying to get every little, get the reports how I would like them. It's like a lot of things with technology. You just have to really work at it for a while before it becomes like a natural gesture, if you will. Yeah. So every maintenance, every install, so I'm using my combustion meter on furnaces and boilers. I haven't got into airflow. I'd like to try the, was it TrueFlow grid? TrueFlow grid, yeah. The digital TrueFlow, yeah. Yeah, that looks like a pretty nice way to measure airflow, but otherwise I'm using static pressure and blower that graphs. When I first met you, I'd said something to the effect that you're unique, for both for your background and for what you do here from what I've encountered. Yeah, don't tell anybody. I've only been doing this for six years. <laughs> I think it's that sum total of all that experience. Seriously, you've, between facilities, maintenance, test stand engineer, you've had a lot of experience in problem solving and a lot of times. Yeah, a lot of measurements, a lot of problem solving. I'm pretty mechanically oriented. Where does the future lie for what you're doing? Right now, I'm really trying to train up some personnel basically to do the way I want to. So when we came up with the name Home Mechanics, so it was two of us, so plural, right? Home mechanics is with an X at the end, by the way. And we always thought, oh, we'll get into electrical and plumbing. And then I was talking with you the other day, and I was like, maybe home mechanics is fixing the home. I've really been thinking, I have a close friend that owns a insulating company, and I've really been thinking about getting more towards fixing the whole home and not just rely on HVAC. I really enjoy HVAC, but the service side is tough. I'll be running a few more calls this afternoon after we get off the phone, and then I already have tomorrow full. And people call, I, a woman called me this morning that her air conditioning was out, and I told her I couldn't get there till after four o'clock. And she, oh, really? After four? I, well, yeah, I, mean, I, I know. I'm sorry. You have to go all day. You're talking to me? I mean, that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I am talking to Bill Spohn this afternoon, if that makes any difference to you. Didn't make a lick of difference. <laughs> she didn't care. That part's a little tough. I'd like to smooth out my personal life a little bit. I like presenting a whole solution to a problem, not here's a part you can use to fix the problem. Or I'd rather fix the problem. I just want to develop a way to do that without my back fixing the whole problem. So without like naming names or anything like that, competition, anybody doing things like you are? If they are, they're people like me that are hard to find. Okay. In my area, I mean, I see the guys online doing awesome things. I don't know. Every once in a while, I'll run into somebody who I'll see her talking about an ERV or something. And that's usually the end of it. I try to network a lot in my area with the different distributors, reps, any HVAC owners that want to be my friend, call me. I'll be happy to talk. I love to learn what they're doing and share what I'm doing to see if we can make each other better. There's one over on the other side of town for me that when he's been slow and I've had work, I've had his guy come work with me. So you have like a specialty and every business doesn't have to be a specialty. So maybe you can be the specialty solution provider. And not be the competitor, but yeah, more to be the add-on. Right. The service competitor. Yeah. You have a website? I do. It is home, H-O-M-E, dash like negative sign m-e-c-h-a-n-i-x dot com okay i'll be sure to put that into show notes appreciate that yeah yeah i have a real passion about supporting people like you yeah that are seeing things through a different set of than the traditional eyes on how to approach the market i think it helps that i'm not from the trade you'll never hear that's how it's always been done yes you didn't have any bad habits to unlearn my old partner great guy great technician but he didn't use the subcooling or superheat. 
when he charged, he would just, oh, that pressures look pretty good. That's not too hot today. This is pretty good. That's pretty good. He did great work, and I won't knock any work he does. But boy, some of the equipment now doesn't lend to off the cuff. I have too many split service calls to do tomorrow. And some of those can be difficult. We talked a little bit about Duckling, which is the other project I'm involved with. And I had the if people want to look. I'll put a link to the podcast I did with John Hohen, who's a CEO of Duckling, and how that's a whole home approach to things. Try to bring all the factors together, make it easier to quote better whole home jobs. I just listened to your podcast about Conduit Tech as well. Yeah, Conduit. Yeah, Shelby Breger. Yeah, I want to look into that a little bit. I'll put that in the show notes too, Conduit. And doing that whole house, it's really just like developing a way and picking, getting the tools and utilizing the tools and then a way to educate the homeowner what they need and why they need it. That's a big thing. And somebody said the other day, we were talking to somebody about duckling and they were saying, you're basically arming the rebels. It's the people are going to go out like yourself. They're going to do things differently and giving them tools to do that. And a lot of people have a hard time looking past that. We're a project that we have the ductwork roughed in and it's two heat pumps in the house. And I'm begging and pleading the people to spray foam the house because otherwise I know it's just going to get batted and no air sealing. And spray foam is great and whatever it is, but it's at least it's an easy way that I know it's going to get air sealed because I don't see people take the details to really seal these houses up. Every house I see with zipboard that's missing the tape or the or the caulking at the bottom of the zipboard to the foundation. Everybody's always just missing like a detail that's like, I mean, that's a pretty critical spot. I watched the build show and Matt Reisinger and like watch the houses. Some of his houses are detailed. And I'm like, how do I get on with those guys? And like, who's doing that? There's a podcast I did really early on with a guy named Ed Kiesel, who I met through Nate Adams. He's a builder in Cleveland area. And actually, I'll put a link to that podcast in the show notes here. But if Ed hadn't been 120 miles away, he probably would have been the person to build my house. Right. I think you shared with me that you had somebody come from Ohio to come fix your leak on your system. Yeah, Tim Portman and Mike Platko had to come in from Portman. But luckily, you have connections. Think about the people who have these problems all over that can't get them solved. That's why I say we need more people like you. There's one more thing I'm going to mention, which is in relation to what you're saying, which is where your mind is headed. There's a guy named Ben Reed who used to be with Haven IEQ Systems. He's now working with MeasureQuick. Right now, he's working on a blog post with a concept called full stack HVAC, but it's the process of going all the way through the elements of doing good work. And he's a line, he's got about four or five contractors so far who believe they put together the pieces to make full stack HVAC. That's a term that I want to use more and more often because the pieces exist out there for doing the. It's out there, and there's people that want to do it, and there's people. And things like programs like that sealed, who they're really about the financing, but they're doing it based on what their savings, which is a pretty cool concept to make some of these things a little more palatable. I think it's to help paint the picture and it's got to be painted in so many different ways uh, before it's really going to stick with, with society and with customers. So, yeah. And most people just don't understand. A lot of people don't even know they have a filter in their furnace or they think their furnace is a Honeywell because that's what's on the wall. Or like, hey, I set it to 60, it's still not cooling. Yeah, well, it still only runs one speed. So it's a lot of educating your clients. If somebody wants to get in touch with you after hearing this, what's the best way? Through the website is a good spot, as well as my email is matt, M-A-T with one T, at H-O-M-E, dash like negative sign, M-E-C-H-A-N-I-X dot com. 
I'm trying to think of who you remind me of, but there's somebody I know that you remind me of. There's like this natural, it'll click, natural kind of friendship that was there just from the beginning, just from seeing your face. It'll click. I'm sure you'll run into like that's who it was. I'll let you know. So, hey, I want to thank you for coming on podcast. We'll get this episode out there. Encourage more people like you to do this. If start banging through the Corbett's list, that's what I should do. That's an excellent idea. I will do that. Thanks, Matt. And I hope to see you again. You're welcome to come out anytime. I'll be referring customers to you as a responsible, trustable contractor who does full stack HVAC. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Have a good one. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. If you like what you heard today and you're not subscribed, please consider doing so by typing Building HVAC Science into any typical podcast app. There's some other great trade-related resources and influencers out there, including the HVACR School, HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Rarden, HVAC Reefer Guy Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, HomeDiagnosis.tv, AC Service Tech, MeasureQuick, HVAC Chicks, Support Channel, and the misfits of HVAC. And I'll add to that, someone I had a conversation with just today, Dirk Nauman of the HVAC Simulator. Take a look at that. Search for that. That's a great product and a great concept. Some of the topics we discuss require technical training for proper interpretation and or safe execution. So if you're a trained pro, you can go right ahead and do it. And if you're not, please consult with and hire a trained pro. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. In full disclosure, I'm a co-owner of TrueTech, and the opinions voiced are those of my guests or myself, depending on who's speaking, of course. And if you're in the market for tools or test instruments mentioned in our podcast or just in general, take a look at truetechtools.com and use the offer code HVACBS for a nice discount on most products. Thanks again for listening to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Until next time.